Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. I commend this motion to the House. It was lunchtime on Thursday the 8th of September when things suddenly changed. We were in the middle of the political fray. Liz Truss had just announced a massive new package to support people with their energy bills as crisis approached this winter. Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, had just begun his response. But then both of them were passed notes by worried-looking colleagues and they abruptly left the chamber. A statement from Buckingham Palace would follow. I know I speak on behalf of the entire House when I say that we send our best wishes to Her Majesty the Queen and that she and the Royal Family are in our thoughts and prayers at this moment. I'm going to take no more just to, if there is anything else, we will update the House accordingly. For the rest of the day, Parliament, like the country, waited. Rumours flew around WhatsApp groups, crowds gathered around televisions, while in Downing Street, the Prime Minister was already informed of the news. And at 6.30pm, the announcement came. A few moments ago, Buckingham Palace announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. The palace has just issued... Uh, this statement. It says the Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. Ministers were in tears in Strangers' Bar. Journalists rose to their feet in their offices in the press gallery. A strange hush descended over the Palace of Westminster. The interview we had recorded for last Friday's edition of the podcast no longer seemed appropriate. We'll bring that to you another time. In the days since the death of Queen Elizabeth II, our daily political life has paused. Here in Westminster, MPs have been wearing funeral attire. There have been tributes paid to the late Queen, oaths of allegiance sworn to the new King. Charles has been here himself, to receive condolences and to address both Houses of Parliament. I am deeply grateful for the addresses of condolence by the House of Lords and the House of Commons, which so touchingly encompass what our late Sovereign, my beloved mother, the Queen, meant to us all. As Shakespeare says of the earlier Queen Elizabeth, she was a pattern to all princes living. I can't believe he was standing there, one MP said to me as the new king was leaving, just yards from where the first King Charles was beheaded. The sense of history has been incredible. 
And of course, in the past few days, people have been coming here in their thousands, queuing through the night to pay their respects to the late Queen, lying in state in Westminster Hall. She'll be here in the Palace of Westminster until her final journey from Westminster Hall across Parliament Square to Westminster Abbey on Monday. And so, on that strange and solemn note, with the Queen right here, in this moment at the heart of British politics, we wanted to mark the contribution of a monarch who has for decades, believe it or not, been the ultimate Westminster insider. I didn't know until I was doing this research that the Queen actually was aware of these secret plans um, that were going on, that the rest of the cabinet only were drip-fed. The audience between the monarch and the prime minister is not just a matter of having a polite conversation, it's quite often about some really profound issues. She wanted a bit of colour and a bit of gossip and, you know, what was happening in the tea room and that sort of thing. From Politico, I'm Alva Ray, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're looking at Queen Elizabeth II's role in British politics her audiences with her prime ministers, her legendary diplomatic skills, and, most intriguingly, her love of political gossip. So it was at the time of the Platinum Jubilee and we were talking about what we could do to mark it. And I just remembered this throwaway line that I'd read I can't even remember what it was for. It was either something about the whips during the Brexit battles or even something I'd done about the state opening of Parliament. And I just remembered reading this line about this note that one of the whips would send to the Queen every day that Parliament was sitting. This is my colleague at Politico, Annabel Dixon, who, earlier this year, began researching a tradition in the British political system that most of us hadn't noticed before. You probably know that whips are the MPs responsible for ensuring that colleagues in their party behave themselves and vote the right way. But you probably didn't know that a junior member of the government whips office also writes a daily email to the Queen with a colourful account of what's been going on in Parliament that day. So I sort of started contacting people who'd held this role to ask them if they'd speak to me about it and it was one of these stories that really unexpectedly as you're talking to people I just got these sort of incredible anecdotes and this incredible sense of this woman who was obviously just absolutely fascinated by the workings of parliament and as a political animal myself and as I'm sure that the listeners of this podcast are as well it just was quite something to, to sort of listen to this story about this person who was obviously so engaged and so interested in what was going on in Westminster. As many as I have that opinion say aye. aye. Anne Milton was the MP for Guildford for 14 years. And during that time, she was one of the first women to hold the post of Vice Chamberlain to Her Majesty's household. I don't think many people are aware that members of the government whips office are members of the royal household at all. So I was vice chamberlain, which is the most junior of those roles. I was also deputy chief whip, which is the most senior of those roles. But vice chamberlain first. In fact, I was only the sixth woman 
since 1501 to have ever held that post. So it was a real privilege. The vice chamberlain has several duties, and one of them is definitely kind of weird. It's an actual British tradition dating back to the beheading of King Charles I in 1649. An MP is held hostage at Buckingham Palace while the monarch attends the state opening of Parliament, reading out what their government plans to do during the upcoming session. The hostage is, in theory, a guarantee that the monarch will be returned to the palace safely. This used to be a serious security measure. These days, I'm pleased to say, the hostages don't get treated too badly. I was offered a drink and they said, would you like tea or coffee? This is the MP for Pudsey, Stuart Andrew, Vice Chamberlain to Her Majesty's Household between 2019 and 2020. One of them looked at me and thought, you look more like a champagne man. I said, well, I'm never going to do this again, so why not? Well, it was a big bottle of champagne and I had a good time. (laughs) A couple of months later, we had the general election and I had to do it again. And as Her Majesty was leaving Buckingham Palace, she turned to me and she said, and you have a good time again, won't you? (laughs) Other vice-chamberlains have been known to enjoy a sherry while they were held hostage at the palace. But the daily communication with the sovereign and the occasional audiences with her were the most treasured part of the role for the vice-chamberlain and the most constitutionally important. I also had to write the daily reports from this place. Uh, Just to say that she liked the gossip, I understand, uh, is, is, is heartwarming. I remember, because I had to do it every day, that the house sat, writing the daily report to her. And I was told very early on that she didn't just want to hear what was going on in the House of Commons. She wanted a bit of colour and a bit of gossip and, you know, what was happening in the tea room and that sort of thing. And I am sure, like most vice-chamberlains, went out of my way to try and make sure that it was lively and amusing and that it gave her a little bit more than just the reading of Hansard would give her. When you were holding the role, what was the political context? Were there particular things that would have been particularly fraught that you would have needed to be updating her on? Well, I was in the Whip's office during the coalition government and also when the Conservative government had a small majority. So it was always a bit tense. You know, we we had 70... uh, When we were in coalition, the government majority was quite big because that included the Liberal Democrat MPs. But, of course, when it was a Conservative government, the majority was down to under 20. So it gave me material to give more colour to um, Her Majesty about what was going on. So how was that message conveyed to you that you needed to maybe up the gossip? (laughs) The message was conveyed by my private office, um, so the Whip's private office, which has good connections with the Queen's private office and all those involved in the machinations of the the Queen's work. Um, So that was the first thing that was told me. The other thing that has come back to me is because men who've done this role normally wear morning dress for all their ceremonial functions, and that includes going to have a private audience with the Queen. As a woman, I had to invent an outfit, if you like. You know, I wasn't going to wear a morning dress. So I was told very early on that on no account was I to wear anything but beige tights. The Queen apparently didn't like 
coloured tights but wanted beige tights. Not even black tights? Not even black tights, that's what I was told. (laughs) So your early efforts writing these dispatches, were they a bit on the dry side? And then you were gently steered to give a bit more of the inside track? I got no further steer, but I think you you end up being a little bit dry and a little bit nervous. And, of course, there was a, a length limit. It could only be one page of an email because, of course, gone are the days when they're written by hand. It actually went by email. But you add a bit more colour, the more confident you get. And, of course, you notice things about MPs that you hadn't previously noticed because some of those things that you could mention are the amusing snippets about particular MPs, you know, gossiping in the tea room, all the outfits people turned up in in the summer, you know, if people were wearing slightly over-revealing dresses or something like that. I, I mentioned that because it gives colour. You know, what what is what is the House of Commons really like? What really goes on? And and also just to give her a flavour of the political machinations that were going on, you know, if the government was holding a vote that was going to be close because during those times we didn't have a very big majority, all those sort of little bits and pieces. The Queen told some of her vice-chamberlains in person that she had so enjoyed their colourful dispatches, so she was definitely reading them. And this desire from the Queen for a bit of colour and gossip was a constant throughout her reign. One of the sort of earlier vice chamberlains that I spoke to had said, you know, for the first few dispatches, they'd done a sort of serious account of what had gone on in Parliament that day in a sort of quite earnest way, I think. And this sort of discreet message had come back that actually the Queen had wanted it to be a bit more gossipy. And then it turned out that it wasn't the only person who told me this. It seemed to be a sort of recurring theme for other vice chamberlains as well. Seemed to be a sort of problem that she'd had with some of her vice chamberlains that what they'd been writing hadn't really been interesting enough. You know, I I think whoever the courtier was that relayed the message made it clear, you know, she she listens to Radio 4, she listens to the Today programme, she reads the papers. So she sort of already knows everything in the public domain. And what, they, what she really wanted to know was something that she didn't know already. And that was really what they were tasked with doing. Annabelle, it's funny because obviously both of us work for Politico. And here in London, one of the most famous bits of output from Politico, and actually in Washington and in Brussels and Paris and elsewhere, is the morning playbook, the briefing that you get via email that anyone can subscribe to and is now indispensable reading for prime ministers and so on. But in a way, the Queen had her own playbook from someone in the Whip's office, a daily email just for her, with exactly that same kind of insidery detail and gossip. Yes, that's right. At, at one point, the sort of working headline of the piece was something like it's the Queen's own London playbook. You probably know Julian Smith as the former Northern Ireland secretary, or, if you're a Westminster insider, as a former Conservative chief whip. But before that, he was another person to hold the role of vice-chamberlain of the royal household. It was amusing at the point where I um, became Secretary of State because my interactions with her had been when I'd been the whip's office, and I think she did remark that um, I was finally being let out to actually speak. said no. The Right Honourable Gentleman is responding to the debate, and he will do so to a conclusion, Mr Michael Gove. 
You almost certainly remember the chaos of those endless knife-edge Brexit votes in 2018 and 2019. While most of us were getting the inside track every morning from Politico's very own Jack Blanchard, Julian Smith was the person sending the Queen her own London playbook. What you try to do is get the colour of not only the uh, what's happening in Parliament, but also some of the intrigues and gossip, and uh, clearly there was enough of that. I was doing it at a time when things were extremely uh, fraught here in Parliament during the Brexit period, and tensions were running very high. And then that time, you know, with her, you know, was an exceptional privilege and and hugely helpful during that period. Little did we know during the chaos, the backroom deals, the tight Brexit votes, that the Queen had eyes and ears here in Parliament. She knew what was going on from her own personal pen pal at the heart of the government whip's office. The exact information she received is entirely confidential, but she was, quite possibly, better informed than us journalists. It was, I think, hopefully a useful source of information, Uh, but in turn all of the things that we've heard about in the last few days about her humour, her wisdom... Uh, absolutely unique understanding of human nature and how people tick uh, really came out. And I'm reminded of one particular audience where I got quite a shock because it, these audiences are one-to-one. You pass the doggies and the corgis on your way in and then you're there standing in front of her. And during one of these audiences, there was a rustle from behind me. That rustle continued, I lost concentration a bit and uh, Prince Philip walked into the room and it was the week he had retired from public life and he was Mm. basically coming and checking on some of the things she did and he fixed himself a drink and then he sat in the corner and I was quite unsure whether I had to speak to both of them or uh, you know how I would address this situation but I just focused solely on her continued talking (laughs) he sat there with I assume a whiskey and and observed things. (laughs) Um, So you mentioned her wisdom when you actually met her did you have a sense of her sort of long experience as head of state she just had this ability to ask questions to talk in a way that uh, demonstrated that you know breadth of understanding a totally unique network of uh, having met so many people having seen so many situations over the years and that process of, of discussing was hugely helpful She had not only decades of experience having talked to lots of prime ministers, but decades of experience having received reports from vice chamberlains. So she had real depth to her understanding of parliament and her government, which really shone through, I think. So there you have it. The Queen was a political news junkie, just like the rest of us. Who knew? But what did she do with that information? Armed with the knowledge, the colour and gossip she was receiving from the heart of the government whip's office and with that legendary ability to ask exactly the right questions, she would serve for decades as a valuable, wise sounding board for more than a dozen prime ministers in their weekly audiences at the palace. Audiences are my way of meeting people without anybody else listening. Much more about that after the break. 
stay with us. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A message from Lloyds Banking Group. Lloyds Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. A confidential space once a week where you can discuss what's really going on with you. A space with a wise and sympathetic ear, nodding and listening in complete confidence. Think of it like therapy. Only, you're the Prime Minister, your therapist and confidant is the monarch, and the therapy room doesn't have a box of tissues in the corner. Instead, it's got a corgi or two. This is the weekly audience between the British monarch and the Prime Minister, and it's so much more than just a fireside chat. Take it from someone who knew, Margaret Thatcher. Anyone who believes that such meetings are a mere formality would be greatly mistaken. The Queen takes an intense interest in every aspect of life in our country, and she brings to bear a formidable grasp of current issues and a tremendous breadth of experience. Her guidance and advice are always most acute, and as Prime Minister, I was privileged to benefit from both enormously. It was quite funny, actually. I mean, the way Number 10 works is most Prime Ministers run late for most meetings. Simon Lewis worked for the Queen at Buckingham Palace as her first ever Communications Secretary from 1998 to 2000. Yep, he was the man brought in to improve public relations for the Queen after the death of Princess Diana. He later worked as Director of Communications at Number 10 under Gordon Brown, so he saw the relationship between Number 10 and the palace from both sides. The only meeting that Gordon Brown was never late for was that trip to Buckingham Palace. And I actually remember aides actually almost physically pushing him out of the door at one stage to get him in the car for the short journey down to the palace. Apparently Harold Wilson so much enjoyed his conversations with the Queen, he went back on a Friday. So on a Friday he'd go back with some very important piece of information that he, only he could tell the Queen 
So I think there's a kind of element of it being a very special relationship that has lots of different manifestations. Mm. And an important source of support, maybe, as well, for the Prime Minister. Yeah, a very important source of support, exactly. And you know, there are some things, they say it's lonely at the top. Well, it certainly is in politics, at the top of the greasy pole. And if you know you're speaking to someone who you know, has a very different and non-political agenda, it must be very reassuring. And some of the decisions that prime ministers make are obviously life and death decisions. The Queen's relationship with her prime ministers varied, of course, not depending on the political persuasion of the head of government, but on personalities and circumstances. We know that the Queen's favourite Prime Minister was her first, Winston Churchill. And her least favourite? If reports are correct, that's a tight contest between Tony Blair and Boris Johnson. Dr Michelle Clement is a historian and lecturer at King's College London and researcher in residence at Number 10 Downing Street. Winston Churchill was her first Prime Minister, of course, and he was this iconic wartime leader. Um, And he came in and offered the Queen this wealth of experience. He, you know, he loved her. He, you know, wanted to see her succeed and support her. And so I think this was the high point of her relationships with Prime Ministers, especially in in terms of how much she would have been learning. Harold Wilson uh, in 1964 was her first Labour Prime Minister, and they were from very different social backgrounds. And... Surprisingly, they actually managed to form a very warm, successful, um, long relationship um, as uh, as Queen and Prime Minister. Um, and partly that was because Wilson said that he had great respect for tradition. He really enjoyed the ceremonies of the monarchy, and often their audiences would last two hours, um, which is which is quite incredible and, and surprising as the first Labour Prime Minister from such a different social background. And he would often reflect on the fact that she was incredibly well informed, um, and he would say, you know, she knew I hadn't done my homework, but she was very nice about it. And several decades on, Gordon Brown, another Labour Prime Minister would say the same thing. I was very embarrassed one day because I went in to see her at six o'clock and I didn't know that one of the Commonwealth leaders had uh, had been uh, ousted and that a new government had been formed and she was telling me what was happening when I was supposed to report to her. And even on British affairs, you know, I'd been in the House of Commons all afternoon in endless debates or cabinet meetings or something. And she, I think, had been watching television. She was getting uh, uh, notes from her secretaries and she actually knew better about what was happening to the country than I was. It was quite embarrassing, but it, it just showed how conscientious she was, how well up on the detail. The Queen is unelected and impartial, of course, with a few exceptions such as an awkwardly public disagreement with Margaret Thatcher over sanctions for apartheid South Africa, for which the Queen's press secretary was fired. But mostly, her technique was to ask the right questions without revealing a political view, as former PMs have said in a range of media interviews down the years. She will assess situations and difficulties and can describe them, but without ever, and I have to say this is the remarkable thing in all the years now I've been doing these audiences, without ever giving any clues to sort of political preference or anything like that. I mean, it's absolutely, it's uh, it's quite remarkable to see, in fact. She listened and she asked questions. And remember, famously, she asked, you know, why have these bankers got it all wrong in 2008? And you can even hear a rare example of that ability to probe and ask questions in action. 
There is extraordinary footage of the Queen doing exactly that with an open question for Ted Heath during a reception in 1992 when the UK hosted the G7. I mean, he is master of his own situation, is he? Absolutely. He really is. Absolutely. Because, I mean, it's very interesting, isn't it, to have somebody who's been morally, nominally, in every way else to ram it in, the more his people were supported. Although, in an experience that will be familiar to a lot of women, the Queen struggles to get to the end of her sentence without Ted Heath speaking over her. So who knows whether he valued her probing as much as some Prime Ministers. For these probing questions to be of any value, of course, the Queen needed to have an intricate understanding of what was going on with her government. She was often better informed than the Cabinet, and her level of briefing would be almost on a par with that of the Prime Minister. She got that through her famous red boxes. The red boxes come in and out of Buckingham Palace, and they come to Buckingham Palace from number 10. And there are, of course, statutes that the Queen has to assent to. There are appointments the Queen has to assent to. There are papers that the Queen has to see and read. And what really struck me when I joined the palace was how much of that was really day-to-day business. And the red box that the Queen received, I'm sure the same will be with the King, went up to her at night (laughs) and she worked her way through it. Uh, And then it came down in the morning. And exactly the same thing, albeit with different material, is happening at number 10 at the same time. There's a sense, perhaps, that, you know, the monarchy is about the, the representation of what it does. It is, but it is about also making the constitution work and the machinery. And obviously coming back to the audience, therefore the audience between the monarch and the prime minister is not just a matter of having a polite conversation. It's quite often about some really profound issues which may need discussing between the two. So to state the obvious, the Queen, as head of state, was a vital cog in the running of the state. And all of that information at her fingertips over decades made her an extraordinary resource for the Prime Minister of the day. While she was researching the relationship between the Queen and Prime Minister, that's what struck Dr Michelle Clement, researcher-in-residence at Number 10, the most. That institutional memory they build up is fascinating. You know, they, a prime minister comes in and they're not allowed to look at the papers of the previous government, whereas, you know, the Queen and now the King will have amassed that incredible memory. You know, I teach the Suez Crisis, but I didn't know until I was doing this research that the Queen actually was aware of these secret plans um, that were going on, that the rest of the cabinet only were drip-fed. But, you know, she was incredibly informed. You know, it's, it's hard to imagine how incredible that institutional memory of 70 years was. You know, the, the fact that she could bring that to bear, you know, talking to Blair um, during the various conflicts that his government got involved in or, or talking to Cameron and, and being able to reflect back on the Falklands, being able to reflect, reflect back on, you know, the um, decolonisation of the, of the 1950s and 1960s. You know, it's, it's just incredible to think that she had all of that history that she'd experienced and she had all of the papers throughout that time. And there was nothing off the agenda, what your thoughts were about what was happening and how you felt you were going to handle it. Every prime minister and, and the since the middle of the last time. century and has been able to call on this amazing institutional memory. Here's John Major. Her historic memory for what had happened under past prime ministers was extraordinary and uh, a far longer historic memory than your civil service advisors. 
So that was often extremely helpful. And when it came to foreign affairs, there was almost no part of the world the Queen hadn't visited. So there was a great wealth of knowledge that was waiting to be tapped, and it, uh, it just emerged during the conversations. I'm not sure many people are aware. In fact, I'm not sure I was really aware of just how extensive the Queen's involvement with people at the very top of government actually was. As head of state, the Queen would also meet senior politicians regularly at the Privy Council. This used to be how the monarch ruled. These days, it's a formality where the head of state signs off laws. And we do have rare footage of it from an amazing documentary from 1992 which is on YouTube. Confirming schemes made by the church commissioners. Approved. It's yet another way the Queen was kept in the loop and another regular setting where senior politicians got a chance to chat with the monarch. Here's Yvette Cooper recalling one legendary moment at Privy Council. Claire's phone began to ring. And Claire rummaged fast, was unable to find it in her handbag, before the noise eventually subsided, the call went unanswered, and the Queen simply said, Oh dear, I do hope that wasn't anyone important. (laughs) But it wasn't just the gossipy daily dispatches from the heart of government or the other documents in her red box, on top of the newspapers and the news programmes, that kept the Queen fully abreast of every twist and turn within government. The monarch had one more crucial line of communication, right into the centre of government. There's this relationship, the golden triangle, between the principal private secretary to the prime minister, the cabinet secretary, and also the queen's private secretary. And this is a constant conversation. Um, And so if there's anything that's not in those papers and that the queen needs to know about, she she would have been kept abreast by her private secretary. So this is where it all gets properly fascinating. The Cabinet Secretary and the PM's Principal Private Secretary are without doubt the most powerful civil servants in the country. And they are in a direct relationship, a constant conversation, with the Queen's closest and most senior advisor. So what tends to happen is that, or in my experience, is that when the two principals are meeting in the weekly audience, those two very important officials and some other advisers gathered in one of the private rooms in Buckingham Palace, I think over a tepid glass of sherry, as far as I can remember, to form and develop their own relationships. Because one of the things about the way that Number 10 and Buckingham Palace operates is it's not just about the relationship between the sovereign and his or her prime minister. It's to do with the way the machine works as a whole. And sometimes that constitutional relationship becomes more profound. Simon Lewis was in Downing Street in the aftermath of the 2010 general election, in the brief period when there was uncertainty over who would be the next Prime Minister. People have been talking for some time, inside and outside government, about the possibility of a hung parliament. That possibility has now become very real and pressing. One of the golden rules of the unwritten constitution is that a sovereign can't be without a prime minister for very long at all. So one of the driving forces behind that decision, and something I know that Gordon Brown felt very strongly about, was that whatever the outcome was, there needed to be an outcome. (laughs) Because you can't have a sovereign without a prime minister. So I was in the room in number 10 when he famously said to Nick Clegg on the Tuesday evening, 
Nick, I need an answer for you. I can't keep the Queen waiting. <laughs> and I thought that was very powerful because actually what he was saying to Nick Clegg, who was obviously in negotiating mode, is, you know, if you ask, keep asking for more time, then there'll come a moment, and he was absolutely right about this, when I as Prime Minister have to go to the Queen and say that I can't form a government. So, and during that period, the Queen's then Private Secretary, Sir Christopher Guy, was in and out of number 10 because he needed to take back to the Queen real-time information about what was happening in the negotiations. So that, for me, was unique to see that in that moment of potential constitutional crisis, it didn't turn out to be one in the end, you could see the two parts of the system working very closely together. But the Queen had another key political role too, one that was not performed off camera, behind closed doors, or in quiet rooms over glasses of tepid sherry. The Queen was, in a sense, this country's top diplomat, wielding soft power as an impartial but hugely recognisable and universally respected head of state. And I could hardly make an episode about the Queen and her relationship to politics without mentioning her quiet leadership in furthering peace and reconciliation in the place where I'm from. In 2011, the Queen visited Dublin, the first visit to the Irish Republic from a British monarch since 1911. Those opening words in Irish made President Mary McAleese and my parents watching on TV at home gasp. It was a simple but hugely symbolic gesture of respect for a language and by extension a people that had been disrespected over centuries by the British when they ruled Ireland from that very place in Dublin Castle. And another quiet but powerful gesture of reconciliation would follow in 2012. Here's Julian Smith, former Northern Ireland Secretary. Shaking hands with Martin McGuinness, the one of the leaders of the organisation that had killed a member of the Queen's family. Martin McGuinness had been a senior figure in the IRA, which was responsible for the killing of the Queen's cousin, Lord Mountbatten. That was hugely powerful at the time, but then that moment was maintained, that leadership she showed on the respect for nationalism, the need for equality, uh, was maintained for many, many years and even today. And when I was Secretary of State, it was it was acts like that that were motivating in terms of you know, the approach I took and the example that she had had, had set. And I think she set that example uh, in Northern Ireland, in Ireland, but in many other sort of um, cases, issues across the world. You know, her approach during the early part of that decade was to take difficult actions that su- but that supported stability and supported the peace process. And um, that sort of trumped, perhaps, those personal feelings and upset. And I think she just was able to look for those moments, for those actions she could take that would make, a, you know, a huge difference. And, and in that case, I think it was it was... Phenomenal. I mean, you, you speak to people in Dublin, you speak to people in Belfast, those, those moments were really a key part, along with the negotiating of the Good Friday Agreement. Simon Lewis. 
the range of people who used to come and see her and spend time with her. In fact, when I was appointed to work for the Queen, never having met a royal family in my life before, I was invited to Windsor Castle to be interviewed by the Queen and Duke of Edinburgh, and I had to kind of practice my bow before I went in. And the meeting, I mean, I, I was waiting nervously, and the meeting went on, the previous meeting went on, and half an hour later, I'm thinking, well, maybe this is a test to see whether I can cope with the, the wait. And then the door opened upstairs in Windsor Castle, and I heard these peals of laughter. And then down the stairs came Nelson Mandela, who had just been in with the Queen. Uh, this was in 1998. Uh, and apparently I heard afterwards from the private secretary that when he walked in, he said, Your Majesty, you look amazing. And the Queen said, You should see my mother. She became the greatest statesman and diplomat of all. The last audience I, I had with her, you know, she'd been absolutely on it, actively focused on geopolitics, on, uh, on UK politics, quoting statesmen from the, from the 50s. When we all heard about her death two days later, I just thought how incredible that her sense of duty had kept her going in the way that it had. We talk a lot about the Queen's life of service. And for many people myself included, before beginning this episode, that evokes an idea of the Queen cutting ribbons, shaking hands and sitting patiently through speeches, shows and ceremonies. It always sounds very passive, kind of boring, something she just had to sit and patiently endure. But behind the scenes, the Queen studied her red box like a government minister, devoured her daily briefings immersed herself in geopolitics as well as the day-to-day machinations here at Westminster. She accrued a wealth of experience as a player on the global stage for decades and as an intimate observer of Westminster shenanigans at home. She was living British institutional memory, a wise, impartial resource for the Prime Minister of the day to lean on for support and insight. And she was a diplomat who could wield soft power around the globe like no politician. The Queen was, in a sense, the ultimate civil servant, supporting the running of the British state and the government of the day, whatever political persuasion they would be. It was a job she began at the age of 25 and was still doing at the age of 96, two days before she died. Did we ever thank her? Well, yes. In a way, we did. Happy Jubilee, ma'am. And thank you for everything. That's very kind. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Alva Ray. If you've enjoyed it, please spread the word, follow us and maybe leave us a nice review. And don't forget, you can go back and listen to past episodes, including Jack's episode on cabinet secretaries and the secretive role they play deep inside the British establishment from season one. Thank you to my guests this week, Annabel Dixon, Anne Milton, Julian Smith, Simon Lewis and Dr Michelle Clement. 
My producer this week was Eve Streeter of Whistledown Productions. And here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez and my editor is Jack Blanchard. We'll be back next week. See you then. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.